0: Whenever the mirror universe is brought up in Star Trek, a lot of people, at least in my experience, tend to have the same general reaction, which is something along the lines of, and that's very understandable why people have that reaction. I don't blame people for having that reaction. I have to admit, though, that I kind of don't for two reasons, mirror mirror and crossover. Now, that being said, I do actually enjoy, uh... Uh, in a mirror darkly i believe the enterprise one which is a two-parter not because it's a great episode but because it's a very enjoyable episode you know what i mean like it's just like oh god yeah I, I love rewatching it and of course you know it's it's late enterprise which was actually good but i bring that up because the mirror universe is something that i've always found to be ridiculous in multiple different ways the first and most obvious way is the fact that despite being an alternate universe, anyone who knows anything about anything could tell you how ridiculously insane it is for it to be as parallel to our universe as it is. It is basically the classic science fiction trope of a parallel reality. In other words, oh my god, it's you, but you're a little different. The problem is even basic, surface level logic could tell you how that's not likely to happen. In fact. Simply put, the very reality of you being born in another world, in another parallel reality where everything ended up completely differently, is almost insane, unless you subscribe to the Fate-slash-Destiny theory, which does help to explain this, admittedly. However, that Fate-slash-Destiny theory is basically the only theory I've ever had to try and, uh, ever heard the Any Bone Official try to use to explain away the Mere Universe. Everyone just kind of says... Yeah, it's a parallel reality, and just hand waves away everything else. Now, I don't mind that per se, so long as you do something interesting with it. Um, the idea being that these are people who aren't really different in the strictest sense of the words, so much as they are, they have become different. The pure universe, in my opinion, is best used when it is an analysis of the difference between nurture and nature. That everyone's nature is the same but their nurture has been completely different, and sitting down as a writer and trying to figure out what would become of these people under those different natu- uh, nurtures. Excuse me. Now, I do like that. I do think that's an interesting concept, and I do believe that the two episodes I mentioned, Crossover and Mirror Mirror, both have that kind of thing going on. A very strong argument could be made that most of the characters in both are the same characters, just grown up in completely different environments. Now, that being said... I do have my own private theory about the mirror universe I think it's a crafted universe in other words that there is someone or some ones or some things that are actively going out of their way to develop and maintain the mirror universe in parallel to the existing one now that implies an absolutely ludicrous level of technology and or power. But such things exist in Star Trek, so that doesn't bother me. Because i got to be blunt, nothing else makes sense to me. I, I don't buy the destiny-fate thing, obviously. So, <laughs> in fact, I've actually, uh, the most obvious and simple answer is it's Q or AQ. You know, some Q or another who's just kind of keeping things going. It probably doesn't help that every single time someone interferes, you know, between the, the universe's things change on a macroscopic level... We will actually, spoiler alert, this is not the last Mirror Universe episode for DS9, and we will see the impacts of this episode in the future. I'm not going to spell specifics, but yeah. But in the end of the day, I just have to admit that every time I see a Mirror Universe episode, my first reaction is, God, the Mirror Universe is so stupid. I also have to admit, one thing that I feel some of the uh, episodes get wrong is they take it as an idea to just kind of flip-flop everything, Right? Good people are evil and evil people are good. And again, I think that's too simplistic and frankly not interesting enough. You can do a good story by doing that. Voyager proved that with, uh, uh, I can't remember the name of it. It's, it's the episode with the doctor and the, the fake memories, right, for, that, that have been passed down into the history of a different people that Voyager interacted with. God, I can't remember the name of the episode. It's one of my favorite Voyager episodes and I can't think of the name of it. I'm sure I'll get 50,000 people telling me the name of it. But you can do something good with that, but only for, like, entertainment for a little bit, right? Like, you gotta gotta do something with that. That being said, I do have to admit that if you have no interest in really examining the story but just want to tell a fun half hour or hour, I should say, or two hours of comedy, eh, sure, go for it. And I have to add that proviso because Enterprise... Because that's what Enterprise did. Everyone was just, <laughs> we're all to evil. And there was no real in-depth character analysis. There was no real significance of the story other than the Defiant thing. And they just kind of were weird with it. But it was a lot of fun. And everyone involved was just having a ball with it. So it succeeded in spite of itself. Anyways, I'm getting off track. I do want to mention one thing really quick. Uh, first of all, This is really obvious, and even going through my... uh, Actually, let me rewind a second. Let me rewind. Anybody who's been following this series knows that as of this point in time, when this episode came out, I wasn't watching Deep Space Nine. Uh, I was aware of this episode because the advert campaign on this one was insane. <laughs> at least for the time. Everyone was talking about it. It was on every show. There were ads all over the place. And there was magazine ads. And it was in the TV Guide. You remember when that was a thing? TV Guide. And people at school were talking about it. I still didn't see it. But I only point that out because this is probably about when DS9 kind of started coming back into my awareness. I'll actually mention the specific episode when I started watching Deep Space 9 again. Don't worry. We're not there yet. But having said that... When I went through the second time, a.k.a. the first time I was watching DS9 all the way through, which was after the series ended, I remember getting this episode and thinking, that's not Garrick, And it just stuck with me for some weird reason. Fast forward several years, and I looked into the the behind-the-scenes stuff, especially with the Deep Space Nine companion, and I was like, oh, that wasn't supposed to be Garrick. Apparently they they had actually invited Michael Dorn on board to be Worf and Worf was going to be the second in command of the station. Basically just as a not a cameo, but a guest star functionally since TNG was on its way out at this point. In fact, the reason Worf, excuse me, Dor- Dorn was not available was because he was actually filming all good things when they were filming this episode. So um, so uh it's really obvious, because if you just, especially if you close your eyes, but you don't even have to, all of Garak's lines sound like Worf, or a Klingon at the very least. They invented another character who's a very bit part, who was basically who Garak was supposed to be, t And he sounds a lot like Garak does too, in his lines. And it's really obvious now that I actually am paying attention to it and, and noticing the t lock connection as well. This was a very expensive episode for them to do, and indicative of the increasingly loose leash that was being put on DS9. Now, I've talked about this before. It is worth noting I do not have 100% proof of this statement, however. uh, It has been a long-talked-about thing ever since DS9 was coming out that with TNG ending and Voyager being pushed, the upper executives, both at Paramount, um, at CBS, and you know most of the show producers diverted most of their time over to Voyager. Uh, Most notably, uh, Rick Berman is probably the biggest example here. So DS9 didn't really have the same kind of support Voyager did, but as a consequence, it also didn't have the same limitations Voyager did. Now, it has been my opinion asterisk, that for many many years, and I still have this opinion to this day, that this is one of the reasons that DS9 was able to succeed as well as it did, to stretch out and do things that other shows basically couldn't, that Voyager was not allowed to until it got to, like, season 4. But I mention that because this is a good sign, the fact that they were able to blow this much money on this kind of episode. It does help to explain why they tried so hard to advertise it, and it is kind of a deliberate tie-in to the original series, so trying to get more people involved, etc., etc., But what I also find interesting, to continue this thought here, uh, they they, they blew all this money on this, right? Extra sets, multiple guest stars, uh, lots and lots of people who needed makeup and additional outfits, all sorts of stuff. Uh, Several effect shots, too. Not too many, but there were several. Like Odo, Mirror Odo dying. But what I find strangest about this is why they finally acquiesced to this. Now hear me out for a second. For those of you not aware, Mirror Mirror is considered one of the best original series episodes. That is, of course, a debated fact, and I don't want to be stating that as if it is total fact. However, if you look up multiple you know, best original series episodes, Mirror Mirror is usually on that list somewhere. And most people I know rather enjoy the episode, including me, I might add. I wouldn't put it at the top, but it'd be in there. You know, top 20, top 10, I don't know, I'd have to think about it. The idea of... how do I put this? One of the weird things about being a creator, a writer of fiction, is that what the people clamor for is not always what you want to write. I know that sounds weird, but what I mean by that is there's a lot of ideas that are popular but might not necessarily make for good fiction. The idea of continuing a story like Mirror Mirror it was, a, it was always kind of an uncertain thing, if I might be so bold. And there are several people, like I mentioned earlier, who think that the continuation of the mere Universe was a net negative. Although I think STO, my opinion, has kind of brought that back up into the net positive, but I digress. I mean, what I mean to say here is that ever since TNG got started, ever since they first started working on TNG, and were, hey, we're doing a new Star Trek show, people had already been selling scripts or positing ideas to do a sequel to Mirror Mirror. That's how commonplace this entire idea is. And people kept saying, no, 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 for, frankly, the fairly obvious reasons. DS9 was the first time they accepted doing that. And I'm okay with it because it was the first time they felt like they had a story to tell. It was mostly, why was the Terran Empire so horrible? Now, the parallel they make is super obvious, so I'm just going to repeat what they said. Uh, They paralleled it to both the Roman Empire and probably the Ming Dynasty specifically, but the Chinese Empire, and how both of those were incredibly abusive, (laughs) abrasive empires, very violent and very regimental and very totalitarian, because those empires were only being kept in place thanks to that discipline thanks to the many, many issues they had, the so-called barbarians. Uh, the barbarians at the gate is a very old concept, and I know that both, in both cases the reality is more complicated than that, but both the writers involved, several of the writers involved, all were looking at this like, yeah, we can do something with that. What happens if Kirk succeeded? What happens if the Roman Empire reforms and becomes less horrible and less dictatorial and less violent and less oppressive and then gets run over by everyone around them as a consequence? And that's the story they wanted to tell. I kind of like that. I kind of feel that that was a good direction to go in. And I feel like the character stuff, pretty much entirely focused around Kira, although there's some other good moments as well, really helped to elevate this episode in my mind. I also... uh I have to add as an aside... I do kind of like the concept at a base philosophical level. It's one of the things I've always liked about StarCraft. I know this sounds off-topic, bear with me. Because there's an organization, for those of you not aware, in StarCraft called, appropriately enough, the Terran Dominion. Now, the Temer- Terran Dominion is evil, oppressive, totalitarian, etc. It's actually it's almost cartoonishly evil at times. Uh, they are people who deliberately you know experiment on their own and, and send people off to die and blah, 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 blah. But what I've always liked about it is it is stated that the main reason they were so horrific is because it allowed them to advance and progress in ways that morality wouldn't otherwise allow. They could produce more economically, industrially, and they could advance more scientifically, most notably in terms of warfare. So they did. And the Terran Empire was actually a major player, when realistically it probably shouldn't have been, given the, the Zerg and the Protoss that were surrounding them. Now, I like that idea, and so I'm kind of on board with the concept here. You know, if the Terran Dominion was suddenly made to be a more you know, equal, peaceful, egalitarian kind of a situation, they probably would have been stepped on by the UED, oh wait, or the Zerg, or the Protoss, or whomever. We'll see if they ever continue that story arc idea, for those of you who know how StarCraft II ended. Anywho, let's get on with the episode. So this episode was written by Peter Allen Fields and Michael Piller. Now, I mention that because I obviously have a fairly large amount of respect for Michael Pillar, um, even though I think *Insurrection*, Star Trek Insurrection, Star Trek 9, is awful, and I do. Uh, I do think the man has a lot of legitimate talent, especially when it comes to de- designing and making television. I also think Peter Allen Fields is Peter Allen Fields and doesn't need any more introduction than that. So I have to wonder why there's this scene at the beginning which basically could be replaced by the line, like if, 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 the, if you just saw the runabout flying by and then like a, a subtitle showed up on the screen that said, And here Bashir is completely annoying to Kira. That's the entire intro. In fact, if I might beat so bold, it actually feels out of character for Bashir for any interpretation of Bashir, uh, except maybe the one that showed up in Emissary. And even that, I'm not 100% sure I could see him being this much of a dick. Like, he cannot be that oblivious. It's also weird because Bashir's actually kind of interesting, very, very low-key, but he does some good stuff later on. It's also worth noting that the last episode was freaking The Wire, which was a great Bashir episode. I'm sorry to keep hammering on this, but it just strikes me as weird every time I see this episode. In fact, on a couple of replays, I have skipped past the initial scene because it's like, yep, okay, Bashir's an ass, Bashir's an ass, come on, come on, okay, there we go. On with the episode. So uh, David Livingston directed this episode, and it shows in many ways. He himself has admitted that he's not sure he made the right call on this, but he, in several cases, used very different camera angles in order to indicate the the alternate reality they were in. In some cases, I do think it works. And then in some cases, I think it's like, oh my god, what am I doing? Why am I just hanging out around Kira's hip, (laughs) gazing up at her, and then shifting over to the Klingon's the Klingon's hip, gazing up at him. It's like, whoa, Have have I shrunk? four feet last I checked? I mean, holy crap. I'm, I'm sorry, I just didn't care for it. I get what he was going for, I just don't think it succeeded. It is worth noting that there weren't really time for reshoots. So what probably happened, this is a guess, but what probably happened is he had very little time to shoot, tried something, and then moved on because he didn't have a t- time to redo the scene. Remember, this is a very rushed, uh, very very difficult episode to do with a lot of expense and a lot of time put into it, so kind of makes sense. So I've been asked to comment on Kira's outfit. I'm not sure why. Because several people... I mean, I do know why. And I don't want to touch this. I don't want to touch this with a 30-foot pole. So let's just leave any politics out the window. Can we do that for a second? Can we just throw all gender politics and all modern-day co- controversial issues? Just leave them out the window. And preferably, they stay there forever. But let's just get rid of them for a second. Are we cool with that? Okay. I've never found a Visitor to be physically attractive personally. I don't think she's ugly. But it's just not my thing, that's all. Um, now, Terry Farrell, or Kate McFadden, oh my god. <laughs> but one of the things that's been commented on several times is that they put this sexy outfit on her. Now, Star Trek is no stranger to sexy outfits. In fact, it was so predominant in the original series that an entire line of, basically, philosophy when it came to designing costumes and outfits basically grew out of the original series and then prolific, pr- pr- uh, propagated into other shows and, other, and out of the theater as a consequence. Um, I can't think of her name. There's an a- android whose name starts with A. And as usual, I'm sure I'm going to get plenty people. Just look up her... Look at what are little girls made of, Android, to give you an idea of what i 'm talking about um, Andrea was that her name? I think it was Andrea or Andrea. I never know how to pronounce that anyways. I mentioned this because this is nothing new. I mean seven's going to be put into a cat suit in the future, technically from this point on, and i've admittedly never been in favor of that as well. But I bring up the Seven Cat suit uh, very much on purpose, because one thing I've noticed is a lot of people tend to automatically assume that skin-tight suit equals sexy. Now, it absolutely can on guys or girls, but I don't think it's down to the skin-tight part. You have to wear it a certain way, and I don't just mean, like, have a certain body type. I mean, you have to use it right. It's, it's kind of similar to something I talk about in fiction or in game design. You can't just have a story idea or a game mechanic and say that that's good. It doesn't work that way. You have to implement it well. This is where I give Nana Nana Visitor praise. Because I do think she wears the outfit very well. She comes across as very sexy. She portrays herself in that matter. And I bring this up because it is my opinion, I hope I've built up to this properly, that that's all on her, not the dress. That if she was doing that in her typical Bajoran outfit, she would be just as sexy if you don't understand what i mean uh there's a scene where oh god where is that scene there's uh, there's a couple of scenes where she's on approach and she actually interacts with kira regular kira uh kira and uh, regular kira are interacting and talking to each other it's the second one most specifically the one where quark has ended up you know goes to be killed (laughs) spoiler alert That scene really shows the difference between how the two, how how she handle, how the actress handles herself in the two roles. But anyone who's been watching DS Nine can tell you what I'm talking about. Nana Visitor has a very rough, very brusque. You know, she almost feels like she's at attention at all times. And every now and again, she does this thing with her shoulders, where she's just like, you know, like bracing herself for a fight, kind of a thing. You could just see this coiled animal, ready to go there. I'm not saying that's all there is to her, but that stance is completely different from the kind of casual, leaning thing she does and the way she walks and all that sort of thing when she's playing Miracura. So, I'm just pointing it out. Credit to not a visitor. Uh, really quick, I wanted to mention something, because it's only mentioned three times in the entire history of the show. They're actually coming back from a planet called New Bajor. Now, I have a couple things to talk about this. The most obvious thing will come up in a few episodes, so we're going to leave that for them. But the other thing I want to talk about is I find it interesting that they're already colonizing the Gamma Quadrant. On the one hand, okay, I mean, be... <laughs> I would like to think that they did their due diligence, right? I would like to think that they reached out to the Gamma Quadrant and said, okay, we found this area... It's unclaimed, right? Nobody else has any any rights to this, and it's just this M-class planet, apparently. So we're going to just settle here and blah, blah, make a farm of it. It'll be great, right? Uh, On the other hand, we know, thanks to several interactions, especially in this season, that there are several powers that are very close to the other side of that wormhole, as in within just a few light years of the other side of that wormhole, including this thing they keep referencing called the Dominion. I don't know if colonization is really the way to go here, but that brings up my final point here. The Bajorans are colonizing. That would make perfect sense to me if it was done in a specific way, which I don't know if it was, because, again, they only mentioned the new Bajor three times ever. I like the idea that this is basically a farming colony, or a, a production colony, to put it in its most basic terms. Remember, they're having, like, crisis after crisis back on Bajor. They're literally having difficulty keeping up with infrastructure and food and making sure that they have sufficient resources to keep functioning and blah, 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 because they're not a part of the Federation yet, and they're kind of out in the boonies dealing with what they got. So the idea of literally setting up a colony whose entire purpose is to ship stuff back to the home so people can eat makes sense to me. I also admit I like that interpretation, because it makes the things that happen later significantly more impacting on a you know a geopolitical affair when it comes to Bejor. Moving on. So, one of the things that I feel I, I end up commenting on a lot is the ways in which people control other people. I don't really mean to comment on that a lot. It just comes up in a lot of the fiction I cover. Uh, probably one of my favorite examples we've ever covered on the show is actually Minecraft, uh, Telltale Minecraft Season Two, er. No, actually it was Season 1, I'm sorry. Although Season 2 is actually worse for the same reason, but we'll not get into that. No, Season 1. The end of Minecraft Telltale Season 1. Now that probably sounds weird, but there was a very well-crafted example of how a system of control could keep other people down and basically enforce the idea that the people on top aren't the problem. It's these people down here, and if you work against them, well, we'll elevate you. If you uh, hurt these people, or you abuse these people, or you look down at these people, or you rat out these people, or you don't work with these people, then you get the benefits. It's not quite the carrot and the stick, but it's a variant on him. It's extremely messed up. And they, we see tiny little tidbits of that kind of same thing being done here in the mere universe. Uh, what's your designation, Right. The idea that you have to earn your way up to being a certain classification, and doing so, it is implied. It gives you certain privileges. Given how much better that O'Brien, excuse me, let's call him Smiley, how much better Smiley is being treated than the other Terrans, that seems to be a fairly accurate statement. He, She even mentions Kira Mir. Kira Mir? Mir Kira? Even mentions later on, you know, oh, Smiley, you're Theta, you've been Theta for months. You worked so hard to get up to there. Why would you throw it all away? They only, it's just the tiniest little thing in the background, but it does, in my opinion, help to showcase the level of oppression here. It can and has been argued that oppression exists basically universally, to one extent or another. But when I use that word, I usually use it because it is being applied in an extreme. It is being applied to a level that is definitively worthy of note. This is oppression what they're doing to the Terrans here. And maybe this is my thoughts, but I like to think that they're not just doing it to Terrans. Remember, the Alliance is predominantly controlled by the Klingons and the Cardassians, and the Bajorans have a say, probably within the region, but that's about it. Nothing more. Think about how many other races there are on Star Trek. Anywho. So... Uh, I love the idea that Kirk is famous in the Mirror Universe. I really do. That he is such a common household name that everyone would hear about him. Funnily enough, he is in the regular universe, too. I point this out because this is a... I, I wonder if they did this on purpose. Kira, our Kira, is almost uniquely in a position to not know who Kirk is. Because Kirk is so well-known that anybody who has been part of the galactic community for any length of time has probably at least heard of him. He was the most famous member of the Federation and of Starfleet, probably ever. I don't mean to talk him up that much, but the man was a literal legend. I mean, right? But Kira wouldn't have known all that because she spent the last however many years fighting in the underground and being part of the Bajoran Resistance. She's only joined Starfleet, technically, within the last two years. She's kind of new to all this, and looking up on her history about that is probably not at the top of her list, right? So I like that because it allows the writers to then have mere Kira exposit about Kirk... And when it is mentioned to Bashir, he picks up on it immediately. Of course he does, which makes sense for both versions of Bashir. But he picks up on it immediately, and he's like, oh, so that's what you're thinking. So we just skip a lot of what would otherwise be dead air time in in a worse written script. Um, Now, I have a note here, and this is just a question. Why do you think Bajorans are powerful in the Alliance? Now, there's all kinds of answers to this. My personal favorite is that they're not, and that Kira is just talking up their role, that they are basically another step up. You remember that whole system of control oppression thing I mentioned earlier? Well, one of the most common systems of oppression is you give someone rights and privileges and control over the people under them, and in exchange, they help maintain control over the people under them. Basically, treating a slave like a master Even though they are a slave. That's my personal take on it. However, I do find the idea of the Bajorans who have no useful resources, no useful anything, to somehow maneuver themselves into being politically affluent within a major military alliance to be interesting, admittedly. I just can't think of how that would happen off the top of my head. So, let's talk about Kira and Kira for a second. Now, As I mentioned, one of the ideas I love about the Mirror Universe is the idea of, it's it's the most typical and most interesting question that exists in all of science fiction, in my opinion, what if? What if you were still you, but you were born in a different circumstance, right? I mean, how many stories can you think of that have ever done that? Red Sun comes to mind immediately. I don't know why. But, you know, there's a lot of different uh, concepts that can come out of that simple question. You are still the same person. So your soul, yourself, your core, your nature, whatever it is you want to call it, your destiny, your fate, your, your cosmic con- connection to Zanu or whatever is the same. But you're grown up under completely different circumstances, different location, different environment, different system, different events. So how different are you? The, they actually examine this several times in this episode, and it's, in my opinion, what really helps to elevate the episode so well, because there are two characters in particular. They really go in-depth into that. Kira and Cisco. We see in Mirror Kira, Kira. We see in her the same kind of perspective, the same kind of opinions, the same kind of mentality and mindset, but twisted and warped and completely off the leash. There's a line where Kira flat out says, I'm, I'm scared of you, and she says it so genuinely and so quietly, but never for a moment have I ever thought that she was scared of the power she had over her. You know, I could have you killed at a whim. No, 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 no. I think Kira looks at mere Kira, Kiram maybe, <laughs> and is afraid because what she's seeing is what she could have been like under the wrong circumstances, and I think that terrifies the crap out of her. Kira has always been someone who is very big on freedom. But a lot of that was because she was born into oppression. She was born just like all those Terrans in that ore processing facility. So what would Kira have been like if the tables were turned? What if Kira was born into a world where the Cardassians were the oppressed, occupied force, and the Bajorans were the occupiers? Now, the writers and the actress both agree this is what would happen. Mir Kira is what would happen. With her ego completely unchecked and with her... I don't know what to call it. Certainty completely grounded around herself and around her own superiority. She Kira has always been a very certain person. It's one of the defining traits of her, I would say. But a lot of that certainty in our universe is, revolves around aspects of her life that she has found to be centric. You know, the occupation obviously grilled into her the idea of of freedom. But more to that, Kira's always been a very, well, she's also been a very spiritual person, uh, which the show has touched on several times and will touch on in the future. But to me, Kira has always had that inherent sense of total moral conviction. That she un- that she not only believes in what is right is wrong that she is absolutely certain about what is right and wrong. In fact, there will be an episode about that very concept later on this show. So imagine if her certainty was entirely focused around the idea of her being, Ducat basically. One of the arguments that Dukat will level several, several times, and already has, I believe, at this point, is how much he tried to make the occupation less horrible. How he tried to be nicer about it, how he tried to be softer about it. And one of the things I always find funny is people always fling shade at him for that. Now, that is understandable. There are other things he could have done other than being a less horrible tyrant. That is very true. But at the same time... You can kind of see the mentality there for someone who has been raised in the Cardassian Union and the system of oppression that it is. You see, the parallels are so one-to-one, I can't imagine they were on, on, uh, on accident here. Because Kira here, mere Kira, is all about trying to have a less oppressive atmosphere, a less horrible tyranny. I try to be nice. I try to be kind. Make sure Quark doesn't suffer. Give him a quick death, Okay. Little things like that. It actually makes me wonder if these thoughts are ever in Kira's mind when she interacts with Dukat in the future. And again, to be clear, I'm not whitewashing anything. Dukat was wrong. But mere Kira is also wrong. Just because someone is understandable does not make them incorrect. I have a note here. It's just two words. dimensional refugees. This is brought up several times in the episode. And I find the idea fascinating, especially as someone who's been following Warcraft for so long, because the idea of, all right, this has gone beyond tolerance, we need to jump ship, is actually an interesting idea to me. And if it is that relatively easy to cross over, no pun intended, then why not? The thing is, interestingly enough, there are many, many, many reasons why that shouldn't happen. In actual fact... Um, if you remember, in the original Mirror Mirror, they made a built-in plot reason why they couldn't take anyone with them. Here, they don't. This isn't a teleporter accident. This isn't a swap with your existing self. This is just going from one side to the other. In this case, through the wormhole, which I'll talk about later. So there's basically no uh, functional reason, no literal reason you can't do it. So why not, right? The problem is there's so, so many social and cultural political reasons not to do that. These Terrans uh, may be the oppressed, but that does not make them the good guys. This does not make them people who would fit in, as Mirror Sisko himself points out. And I do find myself wondering a great deal how these people would handle living in our universe, the Prime Universe, if you will. In fact, one of the things I actually like to think of, it is just pure headcanon, is if for whatever reason they had brought people over, those people would not be a part of the Federation or Starfleet or anything. They would take one look at that and be like, no, and run off to be part of the Maquis or one of the... uh, There's actually a lot of relatively lawless places in Star Trek, so any one of those... Or maybe they would have gone to Ferenginar, I don't know. (laughs) Point being, it's an interesting thought. It's unfortunately something that will basically never be touched on again. And I find that to be unfortunate, because it's one of those things that probably should be addressed to some extent or another. At least they address it on the other side. You know, anyone who comes over needs to die immediately, because they're a threat. I do find that point funny, by the way, because they are a threat. Not because they're here to hurt us, or because they're a conquering power, or because they're inter- developing some kind of you know, conspiracy. No, just because of their very nature, they challenge the social constructs that exist in the mere universe. I find that amusing. Now, I'm going to take a moment to comment on Avery Brooks. I've talked about Avery Brooks' acting before, and I will definitely talk about it again. Now, I personally like Avery Brooks' acting. I do. I like his role as Cisco. He generally has three modes. He's got the very quiet, peaceful kind of a thing. The take-everything-in-stride kind of thing. I've commented on that before. Then he's got the barely-restrained, and then he's got the... Kind of a thing going on. He has this unique form of... Ah, just going completely over the line. It's hard to explain. I hesitate to call it overacting. And it's not really hammy. It's, it's his own little thing. Did you know Avery Brooks isn't much of an actor? I mean, he has acted before Deep Space Nine. But he hasn't done a lot of acting in general in his life. He's done very little of it. A little bit here, a little bit there. And um, I mention this because... <laughs> <laughs> Because it could be argued that that is on display. But at the same time, one of the things I personally have noticed is that Avery Brooks tends to act this way in real life, too. Now, that could be just an act, because I've never seen the man when he's not on camera to some extent or another. But I like to think that that's just Avery Brooks basically being himself. Because that is no no insult intended whatsoever. But that is one of the easiest ways to act. All you have to do is act like you do. And that way your mannerisms, your vocalisms, how you approach yourself, how you present yourself is just exactly how you actually are in real life. All you're doing is saying pre-prepared lines. That's all. It's a nice shortcut to acting if you're just if, if you just getting started in acting or if you're not sure how to portray a role or whatever. Um, I, I've actually get, been given that exact same advice myself uh, by a director of mine many, many, many years ago. Now... I bring that up, though, because I feel like Avery Brooks' acting here is actually really awesome. He comes across as someone who is basically hiding all of whatever he actually feels behind this mask of nothing matters. (laughs) Drink, eat, be merry, for tomorrow we may all die. You know, he's got that thing going on. However, every now and again, just for a few seconds, it just cracks. And you just see the broken, bitter man under that. And he does a good job of the nuance of that. I also appreciate and very much enjoy uh, the way that he finally does his turnaround. Like, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not wrong. I've just, I've just changed my mind, you know. And he kind of goes with it as if it's just the normal thing. But there's a little more energy to him. If I were to put it into my own terms, I would say that before he was playing the fool, but now he is the fool. And I know that sounds weird, but let's be honest. What he's doing is extremely foolish, but he believes in it. And in so actually believing in what he's doing, there's a lot more, shall we say, gravitas to what he's doing. And he gets across that very well, in my opinion. I already mentioned Kira being afraid of herself. I already mentioned Quark's death. No, no, no death, no suffering. Make sure he dies quickly. I've arranged for a party tonight. What should we wear? That, more than anything else, says exactly how much she is ducat in this moment. One of the things I've commented on many times, and will comment on in the episode that helped to inspire the term, is the difference between a Justice Lord and a Sisko. Now, it's not a 100% accurate term, but that's what the Lorium is, and it's stuck. It's on my Lorium's page if you want to read more detail. But the general idea is that both, from a surface perspective, a Justice Lord and a Sisko will both do horrible things in order to accomplish a greater good, the differences in their mindset and how they react to that. Because a Justice Lord will do that and say, all right, that's dealt with, Moving on. Because it's the correct thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Why would I feel bad about that? That's ridiculous. I did the correct thing here. Whereas a Cisco will do that and will hate themselves for it. And will loathe themselves and will feel awful because they just had to do this terrible wrong. They still did it. They still don't regret doing it, but they are still torn up about doing it. I bring this up here because more than anything, I think this demonstrates the biggest difference between Kira and Mir. Kira. I have no doubt that Mir Kira could, in the right circumstances, be like, Hey, do this horrible thing because it will accomplish a greater good. Now, I don't think killing Cork is in that category, but I could just see her having that mindset and then just moving on because whatever. Kira can, has, will do horrible things for a greater good and will feel awful about it. I could have called Deloria Mir Kira and Kira, but that's just hard to say. Anywho, <clears throat> so I have a quick note here. Bashir is doing hard, difficult labor in an ore processing camp. What I find strangest is he takes it all in stride. This, I think, is actually far more in character for Bashir. He knows that Kira's plotting and planning. He knows that he has to be paying attention and waiting for the moment when he can actually do something about it. And when it comes, he does. He's like, he's on it immediately. Goes over, takes the gun, shoots Odo, gets out. And that is exactly right. That's exactly what he should be doing. I mean, (laughs) to be completely blunt, that's what any good Starfleet officer should be doing, right? But I also like how he never complains... I know that's such a weird note, but it actually raises my respect for the man, that he never says, ah, this is awful. He just kind of takes it and does what he can to get out of it. I, I, I can't think of that many characters who have done that kind of a thing. You know, oh, jeez, my boots hurt. and uh, Do we have to keep going this far? You know, he doesn't do any of that. I'm sorry, just a quick note, quick note. Um, so Garak, Worf, uh, offers a deal to Kira. And I just found myself laughing at that. It's especially funny since apparently it never actually happened. Like, they're at the party and then there's no assassination. attempt. Granted, they kind of got in the way of that with the Human Revolution thing, but, you know, whatever. Um, one note here. I find it amusing how easily Kira can reach Mir Cisco. It amuses me so much because she is basically in... How do I put this... There's no nice way to put this. As an attractive Bajoran woman under a predominantly male Cardassian rule, Kira would fully understand what it would be like to be someone who is a favorite plaything in order to get the benefits of doing so while living in a horrifically oppressive night system. As we will learn later, this was a relatively common thing for Bajoran comfort women. That's actually what they called them. That's awful. Let me just start off by saying that. The fact that Kira, Mir Kira is female and Mir Sisko is male in no way detracts from just how horrible that is. In addition, of course, Kira, our Kira, fully understands living in, in basically, under the Cardassians. So it's basically... What I'm trying to say is that I feel like Kira is talking to, to herself in a way when she's trying to convince Sisko of Sisko of the situation. It's like, look... If, if I had given up and become what you are, I would still hate myself. I would still be just as much of a slave as anyone else, and I would want to do something about that. And it just resonates with him. Of course it does. Because he is a slave. It probably helps that this is something that's been reinforced several times in this episode, that for all of his, uh, let's call them, benefits that he gets, he is still functionally just a slave who is completely adherent to his master. And he obviously chafes at that. (sighs) There's a nice contrast. They go straight from the party to the ore processing thing. It's a a nice little thing. Uh, It's a good way to help show the contrast between the casts. It's an obvious thing. I just wanted to comment on it very quickly. But I also like this wonderful little bit. Bashir basically says, I need you to help me. Smiley's like, no, no, I don't see you. I can't see you. That, more than anything else, shows the power of this particular system of oppression. Someone who is a good man, someone who wants to help, actively goes out of his way to uh, pretend he doesn't even see him because he can't. It would jeopardize his position. He'd lose all those rights. He'd probably die. And in fact, that was what was planned for him. So people being afraid to do, let's be honest with ourselves, the right thing because of what might happen to them, is one of the easiest ways to control people. But there's this wonderful line. Forgive me for getting a little emotional. This is when the episode really starts to shine for me. Because as weird as it sounds, for all of the amazing stuff with Kira, for all of the great stuff with Cisco, it is actually O'Brien that really sells the character moments of this episode. Because he has one line, I am a decent man. He just says that. And there's so much anger there. There's so much restraint. As he says, I am a decent man. He says it better than I do. I love that. There's so much in those words. And then, of course, at the end, he's the one who gives the speech. And he talks about, you know, maybe it's fairy tales, but I wonder what it could have been like, and I wanted him to take me with him. I wanted to go somewhere, because anywhere has to be better than here. He gives a speech about the core point of the mere Universe, as I've mentioned before. The idea that I could be a different man if I was born in a different place. And he says it with such simple humanity that it really drives the point home, as hard as anything else does. Then they break out. I just want to say, first of all, I love the fact that, once again, uh, they have spawned a revolution in the mirror universe simply by being there. (laughs) There's a really small point I wanted to bring up. At one point, Mirakira Kira is looking around like, oh my god, they've all got these weapons, and she looks over at Kira, who already has a gun on the Klingon. She's like, yeah, of course she does. I- something about that just really amused me. So I only have one last thing to talk about here. Why'd the wormhole work this way? Now, based on the way the episode is constructed, I would say there's a 95% chance that what the intention of the authors was, oh no, weird circumstances, Plasma League, goes to the Mirror Universe. However, I don't buy that for a second. That's not just a wormhole. That's the Prophet's home. They have a degree of influence and control over that. My first thought when I first saw this episode was that the Prophets deliberately put them there in order to affect change in the way that would already be seen as happening because Prophets don't don't care about time in a way to specifically affect the only race that they care about, the Bajorans. Now, funnily enough... I have since found out that there is actually a book out there, I don't remember the name, please forgive me, which actually covers the exact same idea, that the Prophets were trying to connect the two universes in a more direct and permanent manner. Funnily enough, STO, yes I'm going to keep referencing it, uh, also has a little tiny little bit about the mirror Prophets and the Prophets, and the implication, though never outright statement, that the two basically are in coordination with each other. It could also be assumed, based on the same implication, that they are in fact the same prophets. Which, given their non-linear nature, actually makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know. I'm curious what you guys think. As ever, I really liked this episode. Tomorrow we actually have a bit of a uh, a unique moment in Star Trek history. But I'll talk about that. By tomorrow, I mean next week. So I'll talk about when we get there. I'll see you next time.